Conversations with Daniel Noor, tackling the tough questions on cradio.org.au. Hello, Cradio listeners. My name is Daniel Noor, and when I entered the Catholic Church on September the 21st, 2013, I brought all of my confusion, anxiety, and uncertainty right in with me. As a young journalist searching for the truth, every week I'll be interviewing an expert on a hot topic, trying to get straight answers on the moral, political, and social issues of the day. I invite you to join me and to have your questions answered about today's tough topics as well. This is Conversations with Daniel Noor. Today's topic is the hashtag post-Trump slump. That is something that I've picked up off Twitter because I'm very modern that way. And I'm talking to Patrick Langrell. Patrick is a senior digital media analyst at the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. As an Australian citizen who recently moved to the US and has worked widely in Australian and now US church media, he's a great spokesperson for the Catholic perspective of the US political establishment. So many people have been confused by this election, Pat. So many people have been troubled. I certainly have felt very uneasy watching footage of a man who is so offensive and just so crass in his comments about women, in his comments about minorities, and in just kind of the, what I feel is the empty rhetoric of, you know, making America great again and cleaning the swamp. I'm not sure that uh, he's bringing any substance to the table, and yet millions of Americans disagreed with me. And so I'd, I'd love, um, Pat, first of all, just to, to hear your thoughts about what Trump's election reflects about the mood of the American public. Sure. Well, uh, it's a pleasure to be uh, on the call with you. Thanks for, for asking my thoughts. Uh, you know, we certainly do live uh, in interesting times, as the Chinese saying or curse <laughs> goes. Yeah. Uh, but I think the, the recent election, uh, you know, reveals really a number of things about the mood in the American public. I mean, obviously, it reveals a widespread dissatisfaction with the political class or the establishment elite. Uh, I think to many, Hillary uh, just seemed to be more of the same old, same old, uh, such that they would then elect a relatively a political outsider like Donald Trump. Um, I think it also reflects a, a strong reaction against what some have called coercive liberalism, and that that is that we've you know we've moved away from the sort of live and let live classical liberalism to a supposedly neutral secularism that feels itself really in no way threatened by imposing significant restrictions on the religious liberties of a large number of its citizens, you know, over here through things like the HHS mandate or, or same-sex marriage or transgenderism, whichever the topic. Now, I think this sort of coercive liberalism has been tied strongly, at least on the left, with identity politics, you know, which is a sort of non-engagement with the substance of any particular real issue or disagreement, and then a preference of identity politics. So, so you know, name-calling and group identities competing over others. Now, you see this often in arguments over Islam, people being called Islamophobes, same-sex marriage, homophobes, and or over immigration, racists. Um, now, I think to some extent, actually, Trump has activated his own sort of group identity, many of whom were, you know, low to middle class white Americans. And so he's ended up using the same strategy against the Democrats and quite successfully. Um, but I also think it reveals widespread divisions and differences 
uh, I'd say amongst the opinion shaping figures in you know mainstream media, the academic and political classes, you know many of whom I think were quite convinced that a Trump presidency would just be impossible, mm. and that really just shows how out of touch they are. I think with you know quote unquote middle America, which is somewhat both of a geographical region, but also more importantly I think a cultural region of the U.S. Um, and I think the other, the final thing that it sort of reveals uh, is that it has a number of implications, I think, for political conservatives, uh, most of whom I think had assumed that the Republican Party was basically their vehicle for shaping public policy. Uh, they're now in a position of seeing how diverse and wide the Republican coalition and the grassroots base actually is. And I think they found the traditional arguments and ways of speaking about conservatism, you know, saying invoke the name of Ronald Reagan through different yeah. speeches doesn't really gain any traction with a, at least a large enough audience to win a general election for a Republican uh, nominee. So those are a few of the sort of the you know, sort of revelations that I think this recent election has, has shown. And and Pat, you mentioned that there was a, a real America or a, a cultural a middle America. What what does that mean exactly? A cult like a, a a real America or an American heartland? What are you know what are what are the views of of that middle America? Sure. Well, it's, I mean, it's hard to sort of generalize, but I think generally, uh, if I'm going to generalize, uh, the moment you move away from the large metropolitan regions of, you know, New York, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, uh, and you move beyond the beltways of each of those areas, you you start to enter, you know, quote unquote, middle America, um, which is clearly a a diverse um, range of peoples, but many of whom who are sort of you know, traditionally minded, aren't too much in favour of big government uh, and are more sort of inclined to sort of get by in their local towns um, within their communities that they inhabit. And I think what they've become increasingly frustrated by is the sort of uh, established, confident sort of impositional uh, nature in which progressives have largely just sort of thought that the rest of the country would essentially go with them over yeah. time and evolve just like they had. Uh, and I think you see that sort of uh, two different sort of cultural regions. And this election, which, you know, was dominated in the uh, media by people, obviously, who belong in one camp, largely were just seen as out of touch and not really uh, living in the same worlds, uh, in the same uh, mind spaces as, as the rest of, of middle America. Mm. Yes, yeah. I, I'm i still so intrigued by this because, I don't know, I, I remember from the, was it uh, the previous election where um, Palin was, was running, um, we, you know, as, as, as vice president, the, uh, the, the SNL, you know, which I think probably is like the emblem of the, like the liberal leftist swing media as far as, um, I think, you know, like a lot of, a lot of Americans are concerned, really touted that as a nonsense notion, you know what I mean? Like that there was a real America and there was like a fake America. It's all just one and everyone wants, you know, everyone wants a better economy and, and everyone wants a better life. And and so I don't know, but, but what you seem to be saying is that there are, there are certain issues that have been overlooked or perhaps that have been discredited by by the talking classes or by by the people who are supposed to be informed. And so I guess to that end, like, where do the major parties stand on Catholic values? So how did Trump and Clinton compare for the Catholic voter? 
Sure. Well, you've got the parties and then you've got the persons representing those parties. Uh, during this campaign, you know, I personally thought that neither candidate was particularly suitable for the presidency. I thought both were pretty badly flawed, uh, each in, in different ways, depending on, you know, which way you sort of... Sorry, Pat, you just cut out for a second, but you were saying in which way you define the lesser of two evils. Is that right? Yes. You know, I, I find it hard to actually, I found it hard to do that in this election campaign, mm. uh, much in the same way that many people found it hard defining, you know, what harm consists in, in Mill's, uh, you know, famous harm principle. Uh, you know, <laughs> actually, what do you mean by harm in that sort of sense? Mm. I found it difficult trying to look into what, you know, into a, a, a future sort of analysis of the short-term and, and far-future harms of either a Clinton and Trump presidency. Now, that being said, there's no use crying over spilt, spilt milk or either way. Trump will undoubtedly soon be president, and so we're all invested in his administration doing well, whether we voted him or not or whether we like him or not. That's just the political system that we live in and that we thrive in, that sort of sense of representative democracy. Now, that being said, I think there are clear differences between the major parties on some fundamental Catholic values or interests at least those connected with, you know, human life, marriage of the family, religious liberty, healthcare, and so on. You know, I think for some time now, the Democrats have seen themselves as sort of bastions of progressivism, champions of so-called, you know, reproductive rights, uh, and, and in many cases in an openly antagonistic uh, relationship with the Catholic Church over contraception, same-sex marriage, and a, a really a whole litany of other below-the-belt mm. type issues. And, and uh, the, Clinton was mocked, actually, by Trump during the, uh, was it the, um, the the Catholic dinner that was hosted by an archbishop just before election night, where, you know, Trump said, you know, Hillary's here pretending that she doesn't hate Catholics. And I think a lot of us, like, when we first heard that statement, um, Pat, I'm not sure if you watched that event, but, thought, oh, no, he's just, you know, he's just mocking. But actually, um, you're saying that she does have a, a really bad track record of anti-Catholic um, feeling? Yes. I, I mean, well, it's hard to know. I'm not going to question uh, Hillary Clinton's feeling towards the church. I'll leave that up to, to others and to, to psychologists. But certainly when it comes to uh, her actions um, uh, and the policy decisions that she's made in a whole range of issues, uh, she very much sees herself as linked arm in arm with Planned Parenthood uh, and other uh, organizations which, uh, which rub against uh, you know, traditionally minded, morally um, sort of conservative type type groups of uh, people. So it's it's you know it's no and that's no surprise. Um, anyone who knows uh, Hillary Clinton and her um, past uh, actions and uh, those of her husband, um, probably a little less so, uh, are familiar with what a Clinton presidency would look like. To that extent, people I think had a, a fairly good idea of of the sort of things that would come about in the Clinton administration. With Donald Trump, it was less, um, it was less clear, partly because Donald Trump is <laughs> less clear a person mm. uh, than Hillary Clinton. And so a lot more of the policy positions were either thin um, and, you know, sort of left more wanting in terms of actual meat on the bone, uh, or were really up to, uh, you know, the personnel who he chooses, who he would choose to run those different departments that impact in those policy areas, um, all of which, you know, we sort of had half promises on, half pledges, somewhat more pledges, and it sort of varied in between on all those fronts. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so as Pat, with most things, the devil's sort of in the details. The devil is in the details, but I think it goes without saying that most people think Trump does not have a clear set of policies. Now, that's well understood. But then you're saying that um, 
Hillary Clinton has not been great, say, for the pro-life movement. Now, watching American Catholics, famous American Catholics, for example, like, you know, Stephen Colbert or, um, you know, someone in his kind of ball house, I get the feeling that actually this, uh, that, that policy from the top about, uh, you know, women's health, as it were, it doesn't really seem to be an, like a determining factor. And I have to say, now I agree with the Catholic Church's teachings on all of this, yet I feel that the government legislating, and I'm, I haven't made up my mind, Pat, but I feel like the government legislating and saying, you know, I mean, I, I'm not even sure what the government would say. I'm not even sure what an ideally conservative, I mean, a, a, a morally conservative government on this issue would say, and what would be the ideal situation? What would be the ideal situation for, uh, you know, the Catholic, the Catholic thinking about women's health and women's bodies? What would the government be expected to do, ideally? Well, that's a big question, and if I had uh, the perfect answer for it, it would have resolved a lot of the uh, tensions over the last few years. But the, uh, the U.S. bishops have, have been engaged, as well as a lot of other policy thinkers on both the left and the right, in looking at healthcare, um, and you know, over the last few years, at least in the states, much of that has been wrapped up in uh, quite vigorous and heated debate and lawsuits and uh, committee hearings over the Obamacare, um, and much of that is tied up with the mandate that uh, has come out from the Department of Health and Human Services uh, over the provision of contraception with insurance providers. So there's a it's a thorny, complicated, drawn out uh, history. There's obviously much discussion on the Republican side at the moment about what to do with Obamacare, um, with uh, sort of movement swaying back and forth over repealing it uh, completely uh, or to just repealing certain parts of it. Uh, I think the church in general is in favour of some form of uh, universal health care. Uh, you know, we want all people to be looked after and provided and to make sure that they have, you know, all the basic requirements for healthy healthy living and that they're, they're, they're provided for in, in situations of need. Um, so that's the sort of the general, yes. uh, you know, principle. But I obviously it, it, it then... Yeah, but could you tell me a little bit more about just exactly what we're expecting our leaders to do? So, you know, I mean, you earlier mentioned Reagan as a kind of a bastion of Republican republicanism. And he was, I would say, beloved by Catholics. Or perhaps Kennedy would be a better example, you know, being a Catholic himself. So how is his policy position different to Hillary Clinton's? It's more just to help my ignorance, Pat, rather than to debate a fine point. How were they different? Is it society that's now changed that has allowed a greater, you know what I mean, like a more liberal society? Or is there actually a difference in policy? What is the difference now in the way that Hillary Clinton and the Republican Party is presenting, uh, or rather the Democrats are presenting women's health? You know, what, what's going on? Uh, well, it's undoubtedly the case that under the broad umbrella of women's health, uh, the Democrat Party sees that as including so-called reproductive rights, um, which would be, in many cases, uh, expanded and uninhibited access to abortion for women uh, and all the litany of services that go along with that. Uh, any restriction or curtailment of uh, those rights would be seen as a great harm to women, um, hence the rhetoric uh, during the last campaign, not the present one, but the war on women, the Republican war on women. Uh, so very much so they're in favour of a big government, 
providing um, all of these sorts of services to women. Um, I think the Republicans and any seriously minded person would be examining exactly what is you know, health and what is uh, women's and men's health and what does that actually mean and is abortion and provision of contraceptive services and other such things, is that it actually fit with a vision of what healthcare uh, is and what healthcare really should be? Um, so there'll have to be specific policy debates on those uh, issues, and, and they will continue. Um, there's uh, there's no easy solution okay. to this yes. particular like issue. The bottom line, I mean, the, really, the bottom line is that you're saying that Hillary Clinton is allowing uh, a kind of unfettered access to abortion. But you make that sound like, um, you know, like it's a gateway drug of some sort, that once you start aborting, you know, I mean you won't stop. And, and I don't mean to be crass, but I feel like this is not something that you can ultimately... I mean, well, what about the days of... The, and this is an argument that you often hear from, like, you know, um, the, the pro-choice movement. What about the days of backyard abortions and women taking matters into their own hands and the dangers that that posed? Do you know what I mean? You make it sound as though, you know, that that's kind of a, a stricter, stronger, I don't know, legislation on this point will... You, you feel that it really will mean that women are safer, that, that if the government says, actually, perhaps, I don't know, you need to show some criteria in order to, um, to take yourself to a clinic and some such, you know, that has to be like, will that mean that uh, a woman's health will be um, less vulnerable to the dangers of, of abortion? I mean, other than the moral issues that uh, a Catholic believes in, what, what will stricter legislation mean for women? Yeah, so I don't think that the issue will be resolved by just looking at laws. Uh, laws undoubtedly have an effect on culture. They shape culture. Their laws have a sort of educative uh, purpose and function. It, it teaches what is what is right and what is wrong, what is what is enabled, what is prohibited, um, and that undoubtedly affects um, the way people think and which affects their choices, which shapes them and shapes up communities. So law is a significant. Uh, piece in this issue of what needs to be done. But it's not just uh, about laws, because if we just take a you know, reductive look at culture and just think it's a product of laws, then we're going to be going up and down uh, with each administration and with each sort of set of changes and things will be band-aids and then stripped off again and changed again later. Uh, really, obviously, we're looking at a broader cultural question, uh, and that is, you know, how ought we to order our lives together? That's the really the great political question. Mm. Um, and that's really going to be important in, in, in the next, you know, four, not just the next four years, not just the next eight, but the next 20, 30 years and beyond is it's increasingly clear that America is becoming more and more divided. Uh, these particular issues that we've looked at, abortion, same-sex marriage, other ones, uh, are really sort of flashpoints. But the whole election and everything in general has revealed how deeply divided the U.S. is. Uh, and that's not going to be uh, healed and fixed uh, overnight. It's going to take quite a while to heal some of these divisions. Um, but I think that's why looking at the broader sort of cultural question, which is what the church has a big role to play in, uh, can seek to try and provide a bit of a model of how public discourse can be had, that you can reasonably disagree with people. You don't need to name call people or think they're evil or wicked or stupid. Um, you must see your fellow citizen as part of a common fabric, a neighbour, mm who with even though you may radically disagree with, uh, you ultimately come together in, in celebrating a sort of pre-conditional commitment to the country and to the nation itself. I think that's the sort of uh, level of discourse of civic friendship that's called for 
now that hopefully members of the church and then beyond can can imitate so that we can change the culture, which will then affect also as well the changing of the laws. Pat, to that end, and, you know, I think that you've expressed that hope really beautifully, but looking at the American political system from afar, they look so very divided as to be almost from different planets, you know. Like, what one is very much about, you know, like fixing the economy and our country is broken, the country is a, a hot mess. And the other one, you know, has a totally different mindset about, you know, like the rights of black people and women's rights and the LGBTQ community. And so why is the country so divided? And more importantly, can we just looking at the Republican Party? Because we there's only so much time we have. um, And and I'll, I'll just end on this. If I could get your thoughts about this question, if you could just tell me, why is the Republican Party, why does it seem so crazy? <laughs> it seems nuts. Like, it just looks nuts, you know. The, the They put forward a man who has no political experience. Now, I know that's not completely unheard of, like, in American history. But, he, but who, like, so preposterous if you told someone, like, six months ago, oh, yeah, Donald Trump is going to be president, they probably would have laughed at you. So what is going on? Like, yeah, if you could tell me, why does the party seem so silly to outsiders? Well, uh, I really think this election campaign uh, and and the election itself um, has revealed, uh, like I mentioned before, how uh, diverse some of the camps within the Republican Party are. To some extent, the Republican Party mirrors the Liberal Party in Australia, which sort of prides itself on being a sort of an open tent with, you know, a, a variety of, of factions and groups that it sort of, you know, as an umbrella uh, sort of encompasses. I think the Republican Party is, is, is very similar to that in contrast to the Democrat Party, which seems to be a sort of uh, quite narrow um, orthodoxy in terms of uh, certain views that are, are held within the party. The Republican Party is, you know, is, is a broad mix of sort of grassroots, you know, sort of lower to white middle class uh, folks with, um, you know, sort of economically uh, pragmatic and sort of a, uh, foreign policy, slightly hawkish uh, sensibilities mm. with, um, you know, moral conservatives and traditionally minded religious uh, sort of Catholic uh, and evangelical um, sort of folks. So it contains all these sorts of um, groups of people. And I think that um, part of what uh, this election has shown is that these were loosely bound in a sort of coalition for, for quite a while. And part of the Republican Party's genius has been to sort of balance these um, well and sometimes not so well over time. Uh, and you've found now that the Republican elites, um, those who govern the party and made sort of most of the decisions over um, leadership, um, have largely gotten out of touch with some of the grassroots mm. voters and misunderstood uh, and didn't really see where some of the anxieties and frustrations uh, were being felt at the sort of grassroots level. Uh, and so you have this sort of incomprehension then that someone like Donald Trump would be able to get as far as he did. Um, so I think there's a number of uh, – I wouldn't be so harsh on the Republican Party. I think there are some things that obviously clearly – uh, that they misunderstood. Um, but there are th- some things that can be learned from this experience. And I think that the Republican Party really, really will be learning this, uh, you know, on the run, so to speak, as 
as the Trump administration begins to sort of unfold and, and gather itself together, that they'll be trying to learn what can they learn from Trump mm-hmm. and Trumpism or some sort of growing movement uh, or lack thereof, uh, and how can the party move ahead over the next four years and govern well and also steady itself uh, in a way that can be strong for the next election four years down the track and, and further beyond that as well. And that's an open question, really. It'll be interesting uh, times <laughs> ahead. Yes, and yeah. uh, I'm glad to be over here in the US while it's all going on. And thank you so much for your time today, Pat. Um, I'd also like to thank our listeners, actually, um, for listening today with, uh, with you know, such technical difficulties as well. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to Conversations by searching iTunes for Cradio or Conversations with Daniel Noor. You can also uh, share this podcast with a friend who might be interested in the American election and the hashtag post-Trump slump. Also, could you do us a favour and give us a five-star rating on iTunes? The way the iTunes algorithm works is that any episodes you rate highly are more likely to be seen, which helps us to get the good word out there. And finally, subscribe to the Cradio newsletter by clicking subscribe uh, on the website. Don't forget to like Cradio on Facebook as well. Pat, thank you again for your time. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks very much. And that's all for now. Join us next time. You've been listening to an episode of Conversations with Daniel Noor. And for more episodes of Conversations and for more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.